Chapter Eleven of Murder at St. Denis by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Marmion read the flaring headline in Mrs. Totman's room the next morning. Go see, Eloise had urged. Her husband brought her the morning paper, and she's the only one that has it on this floor. She's holding court like a grand duchess. Go on, Marmy. The headline was spread across Mrs. Totman's feet. Sam's headline. To Marmion, it was what her speech instructor in college had called an emotional blow in the midriff. Where is Cardinal's daughter? The banner demanded, and in decreasing size. Cassidy linked to unsolved mystery of murder in mine. Chain of events begun generation ago may lead to solution. Then, in twelve-point print, the type used for a child's easy reading, Sam's scoop began to explain itself. Who, he demanded, is Cardinal's daughter? Where is the baby who was left motherless twenty-nine years ago, when the flaming-haired beauty of the gambling casino was shot down by an unidentified gunman? Who was accountable for the accident that took the life of Father Anthony Dumont, popular young missionary, a few weeks before the murder of Cardinal? The answer to these questions may contain clues that will point the way to a solution of the recent killings in Gopher Gulch. As if someone who knew all had stood looking over his shoulder, Sam continued with his story, the discovery of the ancient letter in Jock's pocket, a short but colorful history of Cardinal and Father Anthony's contrasted goodness, dwindling back into the hackneyed facts of the murder of Cassidy, whom he designated as a far-famed business tycoon. Marmion skipped the last paragraphs to return to the beginning. Cardinal had been married to a dimly known character named Smith, who had disappeared either through adventure or misadventure several months before her death. He had no importance, apparently, except as the father of the mysterious daughter. There was no hint that he had raised a gun against his glamorous spouse. And who, Sam asked again, is Cardinal's daughter? Is, not was. Sam took it for granted that she had grown to womanhood. Thirty or thirty-one, Marmion said aloud. How's that, dearie? Mrs. Totman interrupted a monologue of her own. That's how old she'd be, Cardinal's daughter. Oh, well, like I was saying, I should have got to know her. I was real sorry I didn't, afterward. I said to Totman, I felt like some of it was my fault, not because I did, but because I didn't. Who are you talking about, Mrs. Totman? The woman regarded Marmion with affectionate reproach. You ain't been listening, honey. I was talking about his wife. She pushed the sleeves of the pink nighty up her brawny forearms, and nodded sagely. Jock Turner's wife. Mr. Wilkins had been worried about the funeral. It would seem like presumption on his part, he feared, to invite the great of the region to pay their last respects to Big Balsam Cassidy in the confines of his little chapel. But when he saw the assemblage, silent and expectant, and how it overflowed to the porch and into the street, up to the dead end against the cliff, and down to what used to be the post office, he knew his doubts to be rooted in personal vanity. The chapel, although better than a stable, had not been chosen by the mighty Cassidy as a setting for a final gesture of sham humility. The building was only incidental. He had come back to the gulch where, as a prospector, he had possibly known the only happiness of his life, when the dream was all ahead, but well within the power of realization, and this was the last return of a friendless and lonely man. The old preacher stepped out on the porch as the organ music ended. He had not planned to speak from here. 
but if he were to remain inside near the fine bronze casket and the organ drayed in for the occasion it would seem like a private service for the benefit of the hellbent dignitaries and other important people gathered inside they could hear him perfectly well on the porch clasping his bible with a finger marking the place he let a moment pass while his eyes strayed over the crowd if cassidy wanted friends he had them to-day jammed into the sun of main street sam's lurid story had only spiced with romance the charity of this man who had stooped so low that he had risen high not that one of them would condone murder but so long ago and nothing had been proved a good many were weeping he saw shedding the almost involuntary tears always called forth by organ music at a funeral they wept not for cassidy who lay in the satin soft coffin but for all the dead they had buried before and for themselves who would die and for the frail living who could hardly be expected to last out the winter and yet would most likely surprise everyone by attending the funerals of some of the weepers mr wilkins understood so well one never attends another's funeral solely he sits also at his own he opened the bible finding his place he would have been shocked to know that some of the tears were inspired by emotion over himself a dear old man in a shirt ironed to a fine gloss his white hair professionally trimmed but not too short his suit brushed to a good blackness his hand trembling a little over the page a childlike guileless soul the sheriff was not one of the emotional ones the officer stood alone at the edge of the crowd he had spent the morning insistently digging facts out of mr wilkins copious memory the old man he felt had had a motive in giving that young whippersnapper reporter such a yarn but listening to the rich voice reading the psalm as it should be read out of the depths i have cried unto thee o lord there is forgiveness with thee my soul waiteth for the lord more than they that watch for the morning listening the sheriff wondered it would have happened exactly as mr wilkins declared sam had caught him in a reminiscent mood he had rambled on and chanced upon the fact of the baby daughter something long forgotten it was no secret that cardinal had had a daughter perhaps a year old at the time the mother was killed no one had ever seen her as those women almost universally did cardinal had sent the baby away possibly if the girl were alive she was still ignorant of her parentage that was the one thing cardinal's kind could do for their children protect them from their own way of life the prayer began the sheriff bowed his head an instant later he noticed a familiar profile ahead of him a woman one of the nurses from the hospital funny he couldn't place her then but they all looked quite unlike themselves in street clothes even marmion pius she was there clutching her purse as if it helped her to keep her balance the sheriff was near enough to mr wilkins house to hear when the telephone began its irreverent racket no telling how long the ringing would go on with no one to answer people were turning their heads in annoyance quietly the officer made his way to the house and entered you're disturbing the proceedings brant he said into the old-fashioned wall telephone what's up brant's lazy drawl answered i'm sure sorry boss but you got two calls here that look pretty important one anyway who's it from that pretty kitty at the hellbent boulevard mannering cassidy secretary right oh he called around noon but i didn't know where to find you he's at the funeral now i bet he's chief mourner 
but he'll be back at the hellbent right away after. He sounded like something outside was biting him. What about the other call? Oh, that's some girl, Marmion Pius. She called this morning, too, and again about noon. Said if you got up to the hospital to be sure and see a patient, Mrs. Totman. That's all. Well, that one can wait, the sheriff said and hung up the receiver. Mr. Wilkins' blunder might not prove to be such a bad break after all, he pondered. Up to this point, no one had volunteered information of any kind. But out comes Sam's story, and suddenly there are two calls, both from people who had done as little as possible to cooperate before. What prompted them? Fear? Most likely. An ounce of funk weighed more than pounds of persuasion. He had abundant time to go to the hospital, see Mrs. Hoosett, and still be at the hellbent ahead of Mr. Mannering, the sheriff decided. As he stepped out of the house, the crowd began to sing, led by the expensive quartet, which he expected to perform alone. But Mr. Wilkins was not presiding at a performance. He was initiating Big Balsam Cassidy into the brotherhood he had never known, alive. "'What a beautiful hymn,' says Sister Ursula, as the tremendous voice poured up over the rimrock. "'Safe in the arms of Jesus. Somehow, I never imagined Mr. Cassidy needing safety.' He was mortal, Sister Judy said gently. They stood well back from the rimrock, out of view of the crowd below, all the sisters together, and the singing of the invisible hundreds swelled up and around them as if it came from inside the hills themselves. Mr. Cassidy would have been impressed by it, Sister Judy thought. Perhaps he would even have seen something of the kingdom and the power and the glory if he had heard the magnificent praying of those voices a few minutes ago. The tears ran down her cheeks. Sister Margaret, beside her, was wondering if she had been correct in assuming that Mr. Wilkins would like starch in his shirt collar, and then she had a twinge of conscience over letting her mind wander from a religious ceremony, and that twinge was followed by another over even this long-distance participation in a Protestant service. But Sister Magdalene had given permission to all the community to pay this final tribute to their benefactor. Theoretically, they could have attended the funeral, but Reverend Mother would never have allowed it, to say nothing of the bishop. So they stood out of sight on the crown of the rimrock, and said silent Hail Marys during the part of the services they could not hear. The superior did not speak during any of the forty-five minutes of the ceremony. "'Twins this time, Sheriff,' Mrs. Topman beamed, shaking the sheriff's hand stoutly. "'My husband's calling them Doc and Spike, but we haven't decided on names yet. You a family man, Sheriff?' One grown daughter, the tired officer eased himself into the rocker. I understand you wanted to see me, Mrs. Totman. Me? Land, no. Where'd you get that notion? There was a call to my office from Marmion Pius. She said for me to. So that's it. Mrs. Totman stiffened against her pillows with a gleam in her eye. I knew there was some skullduggery about that corset. The sheriff blinked. A corset? Oh, not just any corset. This was Sister Peter's, and I give it to that girl, trusting her like I would my own. And I says, will you see that Sister gets it? And she says yes. But I know perfectly well she never did give it to Sister, because she ain't mentioned it. Sister Pete ain't, and she would have if she got it, because Sisters are that polite, even to each other, let alone. Mrs. Totman, I don't believe. Mrs. Totman's gaze was unseeing upon the footrail of her bed and your eyes were hearing nothing but Marmion's treachery. I'll be glad to, she says, and off she goes, 
and what she could have done with it i don't know it'd make two for her she's a slim thing but just you wait till she's had a few kids mrs totman the sheriff interrupted firmly i'll be glad to question miss pius about this uh garment but there must have been something else she'd hardly call me on to her own trail think hard please then it must have been jock i was telling her about him but land i didn't think it was that important she pushed herself more erect and her plump face glowed my that poor young fellow came to an awful end didn't he down in that mine and all what in the world ever possessed him sheriff and his suitcase right beside him too they said and they said he looked real surprised my you just never know do you rumor had indeed added picturesque touches to the story of jock's death the sheriff took out his notebook he didn't intend to write much in it but mrs totman was one of those overworked taking for granted beings who would love to have her words recorded in a notebook how well were you acquainted with jock mrs totman oh not much i don't suppose i can tell you anything you don't already know they lived near us for a while twelve miles being near in our neck of the woods alkali flats they mrs totman's nod humped her hair against the pillow i don't get off the ranch very often doc and spikes number ten and eleven of course i only had eight then but they're like steps on the stairs one right after the other the girl wasn't much for visiting either kind of hoity-toity but all us neighbors kind of blamed ourselves afterward seemed like the lonesomeness might have drove her to it the sheriff's hand opened loosely the girl you mean jock was married mrs totman looked at him with reproach look you dropped your notebook sheriff she waited until he had retrieved it before she continued sure he was married he had this ranch near us like i said and they lived there oh six seven months maybe i could figure it to the last week if you give me time by mary's hives mary was the baby then always breaking out with something and around the time i took her to the doctor the approximate time will do the sheriff told her how long ago was this mrs totman approximately he changed her formula well like i say mary was the baby when they come and she's four now three years a little longer i guess i had one in between you don't happen to know the girl's maiden name not her maiden name but i know i've heard her first name something short maybe it'll come to me i guess i better tell it to you my own way and some of these things i forgot might pop into my head a good idea the sheriff murmured making the notebook very prominent well i've always thought i understood better than some how that girl felt she'd come from a city like me and she must have thought ranches were awful romantic places the lady riding out like a duchess and the cowboys circling the herd in full moonlight and singing while a coyote howled in the coulee well the coyote was all that turned out like she expected if she was like me and i know how jock's place looked the ranch house was a little unpainted one rearing up in a ravine and one cottonwood for shade and the corrals were just plain old pole fences and the one cowboy on the place couldn't carry a tune there just ain't no west like in the movies she used to play her fiddle some she was a musician i know that but the fiddle wouldn't sound like it used to with nothing to go with it but a little dogie bawling down the draw jock was a rodeo rider then getting up into the money national champion bulldogger or something he was everlastingly off to some rodeo at first she'd go with him but that wasn't any life for a nice girl that done all she'd done so she got so she'd just stay home 
Just what has she done, Mrs. Totman? Oh, I don't know, maybe not so much, but all that fiddling was sure nice, and she had lots of clothes. She must have had some use for him in the first place, or she wouldn't have got him. Mrs. Totman's eyes were on the undertaker's calendar, which offered helpful services in time of need. It was evident that she had given much thought to the delusioned young wife in her unpainted house, down in the ravine with the one cottonwood. Now this part, I don't really know, Sheriff, only that the house burned down and nobody seen her after. Nobody, that is, but the railroad ticket agent in Rapid. They traced her that far, but I guess she didn't go where she bought her ticket for. Anyway, they never found her. See, Jock was gone, we knew that much, and from the looks of things, somebody figured out she'd maybe dumped a lot of kerosene in the kitchen stove to make it burn faster, and it exploded. I expect her fiddle was burned up, too. Poor thing, I often wondered what she did after she left here. And Jock sold the ranch? Yes, a few months after. He got thrown in a rodeo pretty soon, and he was in a hospital over in Cheyenne for a while. Then they brought him here. Couldn't even walk till Doc Kingston fixed him up. My, there's a grand doctor. Only he... She glanced toward the door and lowered her voice. Sheriff, is it the bounden truth that he likes his nip? I ain't ever smelled nothing on him. And Jock sold the ranch, the sheriff repeated. That's right. I guess he'd seen too much trouble there. And you never saw the girl? Never. More's the pity. She was real good looking, I guess. She'd brought all her evening dresses with her. My, I sure wished I'd have seen him. But you didn't know her name. Well, if I could think of it, something short. Anne? They don't come much shorter than that, do they, Sheriff? No, seems like it had a little more to it. But you're sure you don't know where she came from? No, I never did hear. I guess all I know for sure is she had a short name, and her house burned down, and she played the fiddle. And her and me, we both seen too many western movies before we got married. Oh, well, we all make mistakes, the sheriff said, closing his notebook. Mrs. Totman laughed heartily. Land, I didn't make no mistake. I wouldn't have lived any place else. It ain't like in the movies, but, my, I wouldn't want to be married to a man that went around singing all the time. He wouldn't ever get nothing done. The sheriff grinned for the first time in days. Maybe you got something there. Now, I don't want to be hard on you, Mrs. Totman, but if you feel up to doing a little ruminating on that name, I sure appreciate it. It ain't going to hurt me one bit, sheriff. I'm sort of sifting through names anyhow, for Spike and Doc. How would you favor Leonard and Leopold? We could cut him to Lenny and Lee. We're great for nicknames. When I named Mary, I said there's one they can't nickname. But the kids call her Mare. Fine, said the sheriff absently. I'll get in touch with the sheriff of your county. You can, but it won't do much good. There was nothing to the investigation. Jock didn't want to push it, seemed like. The sheriff might remember the case. He don't. Mrs. Topman interrupted. He got shot. See, there was this rancher, Plumbag Olibar. He put up a gate to keep this neighbor's cattle from trespassing. But the other fellow, Land, I ought to know his name as well as my own. Well, thanks. You've sure helped me, Mrs. Topman, the sheriff said quickly. If you remember the girl's name, you might ask the nurse to call me. I won't tire you out any longer now. So long. My, I ain't tired. And say, don't forget about the corset, will you, Sheriff? 
Sister Pete wouldn't mind, you being a family man. You bet. Thanks again. The sheriff made his escape. The funeral procession was winding out of the gulch to the highway, where they would travel a few hundred feet, and then turn back onto the opposite hillside, where the cemetery was scarred by an open grave. The sheriff, at the tail end of the serpentine line, fumed at the delay. When finally he reached town in his own office, he had to hasten his instructions to Brant, starting the search for Jock's wife. He did not wish to keep the magnificent Mr. Mannering waiting. The day was very still. Dr. Kingston, at the open window of his office, heard the wheels rolling over clay and gravel on the other wall of the gulch. Slowly, no hurry about getting there. He could see the grave, a small dry spot on the hillside. The black beetles climbed toward it, wound around below it, subsided into quiet. All the tiny people would move now to the open hole. He slapped his thigh impatiently and was about to turn away when he saw the girl again, much as he had seen her on the night she came, climbing, tired from the long road. She had been to the funeral, and it had worn her to shreds. He waited until she opened the door below, until her slow feet carried her up the entrance stairs. Marmion paused when the doctor loomed in the hall before her. He was intimidating because of his sheer physical size, but the girl was not afraid. She stopped because he would not let her pass. She was holding her hat, her hair was damp where it touched her forehead. King scowled viciously at her. You shouldn't have gone to the funeral. It was totally unnecessary. I had permission to go. I was not speaking of permission. There was a chain of little white plastic daisies around her neck. Cheap. Her hair curled over one of them. The doctor jammed his hands into his pockets. Miss Pius, you are not the type to integrate well into our hospital staff. Don't you know that by now? Marmion looked up into his glowering, handsome face. So this was the man who was so attracted to her, according to the sheriff's way of thinking, who, in Sister Judy's judgment, had been badly hurt, scarred like Big Wilson Cassidy, and all the fighting was simply a defense mechanism. Exciting. We're all a little bit in love with him, Eloise had said, and to Blanche she was a scintillating breath on a cold morning, and now he stood here stoutly hating the young convent graduate who had never had a date other than a few proms arranged by the sisters, hating her because he liked her too much. With the poise instinctive to every woman who knows she is admired, Marmion smiled. Afraid of him? Never again. If I may pass, doctor, she murmured, and still with that little secret smile she stepped around him and went on up the stairs. From the landing she saw King standing where she had left him, astonished, bewildered, but respectful. On his face there was the first hint of frank amusement she had ever seen. Blanche, alone in the kitchen, wished she had disregarded her stomach and gone to the funeral. Even Philippa had gone, leaving Chad down on the gulch with Mrs. Hayes, who had been Cassidy's night nurse. Nothing could be worse than being here by herself, listening to the quiet. Blanche had slight imagination, and yet the kitchen, in fact, the whole of the old ground floor, seemed to brood, hiding something, holding back. There was nothing to do. Philippa had planned supper so they could get the trays ready in a jiffy. Scrub? Maybe. Blanche loved to scrub. The floor was already clean. The old stove, ready to roar like a blast furnace when the gas was turned on, was cool and polished. 
The refrigerator had been defrosted this morning. Chad's toys put away. Everything in order. But she could always chase cockroaches in the cupboard under the sink. Slowly Blanche went down on her knees and opened the cupboard doors. The cold water pipe had been sweating, and the seldom used pans they kept here were wet again. She pulled out the roaster, tipped it so the stagnant puddle raced to the other end. She was not much interested in the problem of sweating pipes. She didn't even bat at the cockroach, waving its feelers from under the muffin tins. She was back to her fearful wonderings. Who was Marmy afraid of? Why had Ellie never mentioned the sore place on the back of her head? A thing Blanche knew about only because she had heard her groaning about it to Marmion in the bathroom. And why had Phil suddenly gone into a fit of the screaming jeebies this morning, when Blanche, hungry for a little cheer, had tuned in a music program on the radio? Such nice music, too. Violins like silk threads over deep velvet. She caught a glimpse of the cockroach and clattered the muffin tins down on top of it. At least it was something to do. Do? Why not do something about her own unhappy situation? Her stomach would never be better while she stayed here. So why stay? The sheriff wouldn't like it if she were to leave. But, on the other hand, if he didn't know she was going, he couldn't stop her. She would pack up and be out of here before the others were back from the funeral. The sisters wouldn't know. They were still out on the rim rock. And the few nurses left on duty, Miss Bacon and a couple downstairs, were too busy to oversee an escaping. Blanche's brain had been too preoccupied to pay any attention to what her eyes were seeing. Now, suddenly, the realization broke through that there was a box in the cupboard with the pans, a long, thin box that had no business being in under the pipes, because it would soon be soaked. Without thinking, Blanche pulled it out. And then she began to wonder what was in it. Something Philippa had stuck away? All she had to do was to lift the lid. A new pink corset lay neatly rolled inside. Puzzled, but not so puzzled as she would have been without worries of her own, Blanche pushed the cover back on the box. The side was dented so that the cover didn't quite fit. The thing would be ruined if she were to leave it here. On top of the cupboard, then? No, someone had put it down with the pans, so it wouldn't be seen. A nice, modest gesture. Gosh, I gotta be gone, she said aloud with a glance at the clock. So she carried the corset box with her when she climbed to the crow's nest. Get the suitcase first she decided, dump everything in, never mind how, then hurry down to the kitchen again and hide the suitcase under the sink. It would be all right. She could set the roaster to catch the drips. Then tonight, after dark, she would catch a bus into town. Although the sun shone outside, the attic space was shadowed. The luggage pushed helter-skelter back near the jelly-roll mattress was all dimly alike. She made foot space by nudging aside an overnight case. Then she leaned far over and pulled out the suitcase with a twee finish. There was another like it, but farther away. Perhaps because she jerked so impatiently, the lid fell open. She caught it with her knee. A long white envelope slid along the blue lining. Her suitcase didn't have a blue lining. In another minute, she might have reflected that the envelope was not her property, since the suitcase was not. But it was an intriguing envelope, with a fat paper folded inside. There was no address. That made it even more interesting. The flap was unsealed. No reason in the world why she shouldn't take a peek. She took out the paper and unfolded it. It was very pretty. Fat, dimpled cupids wreathed the page, beautiful little boys as pink as the roses that entwined them. There was printing and writing, too. She would need time to read all this. 
Quickly she closed the suitcase and slipped it back in the exact spot where she had found it. She was looking for a stepping place when she heard the first tread on the stairs. For an instant she stood there, her heart hammering in alarm. She had blundered into something, just the way Marmy and Ellie had, and now she would go around in danger of her life. What to do? The envelope was too large to go into her pocket, and there wasn't time to reach any door without being seen. The corset box was her salvation. Stooping quickly, Blanche picked it up, raised the lid, and thrust the paper and envelope inside. Then, because her own room was near the stairs, and she would meet the steadily climbing one face to face, if she went in that direction, she scuttled as noiselessly as she could back to the sitting room, with the box under her arm. Lucky the climber was so slow. Where would she hide the box? The closet, which had become the pantry, was the only possibility. She pushed the box onto the high shelf just as the steps came along even with the bathroom. There wasn't time to push the box clear back out of sight. She was in the chair with a leaky arm when Marmion, tired but apparently satisfied about something, slumped in and threw her hat and purse in the direction of the bedroom. I'm beat out, Blanche. What a day. At that, though, I have more pep than Lynn and Dixie. I left them down in the gulch hoping to get a ride. Where have you been? Me? No place. Why? I just thought you seemed out of breath. What time is it? Quarter to four? I'm going to make a cup of tea before I go back to the lab. I'll make it for you, Blanche offered instantly. Thanks, but I'd rather have something to do. I want to get the funeral out of my head. I'll get you a tea bag, and you can take it down to the lab and make the tea there. The lab isn't appetizing. Marmion turned in the bedroom door. Is there some reason why I can't have my tea here? Gosh, no. Blanche replied hastily. No, I just thought, you go right ahead, Marmy. I gotta be going anyway. Marmion alone forgot the big girl's behavior. She changed into her uniform. Then she went to the bathroom to get hot water. They couldn't have boiling water for their tea, but the water from the tap was always steaming. She came back with a full cup. Groping to the high shelf, she shoved aside a white box that had pushed the tea almost out of reach. The box was a nuisance. She barely managed to finger the tea into her grasp. She was sitting in a leaky chair, squeezing the tea bag with her spoon, when the strange familiarity of the white box began to impress her. She had seen that box before, and it had not been on the closet shelf. Cookies? They had a cookie jar, empty. Setting her cup on the table, Marmion went purposely to the closet and took down the box, and then she stood there gaping at it. It was the shape to hold a dozen long-stemmed roses. Sister Peter's corset, she whispered. She raised the lid. The corset was there, the lacing neatly uppermost, and on top of it lay a paper and an envelope. Blanche's paper? But why in the corset box? And where had the box been all these days? The nurses were coming up the stairs now, talking and laughing. Any one of them might come in. Marmion replaced the box on the shelf, but without the folded paper. She glanced at it salt and ink cupids and bulbous roses she didn't dare try to read it now when marmion went down to the lab her large purse was under her arm and in the purse was the envelope and the paper with the cupids in the plush office adjoining the other which had belonged to the great man of the hellbent the sheriff was ruminating the man nearest to cassidy in life sat across the mahogany desk a sad young man with white hands folded on the very clean plate glass before him he wore Oxford grey, with white shirt and black tie, and the impression was that of a sensitive undertaker about to close the casket in the presence of the bereaved.
Last summer there had been a rumor afloat that this same Mr. Bolivar Mannering had dug himself a swimming pool in his backyard, then stood in the hole when he opened the dam to let the creek rush in, and nearly drowned himself. The sheriff found the rumor believable, all except the digging. He couldn't imagine a shovel in those dainty hands. Your message sounded urgent, Mannering. Have you unearthed a new angle? Or is it something you recollected since our first interview? The young man let Payne brown eyes fall to a point on the desk. It's neither, really, Sheriff. I didn't think this incident would be of the slightest significance, and it does reflect on me because... Well, I overstepped the bounds of good taste, a thing I've never... The Sheriff let his annoyance speak. You understand you may have withheld evidence? There's a penalty for that, you know, Mannering. I realize what I've done, Sheriff, but honestly, it didn't come to me with any force until this morning when I read that... That yellow story in the Daily Bulletin. All right, begin at the beginning. My duties sometimes take me out of the office, even when Mr. Cassidy is, was here. I am not excusing myself, Sheriff. This is simply the truth. I inform the switchboard operator when I'm leaving, and she holds all calls and visitors except the staff. So you were out and somebody got in? Yes, I'd been down to the mills to get the time slips, and when I came back in... This woman was with Mr. Cassidy. When I heard raised voices, well, it was a degrading thing to do, but I... You listened. What day was this mannering? A few days before Mr. Cassidy was taken ill. Go on. I had reached this desk when I heard the voices, and I looked up and saw that the door there was ajar, and I went over to close it, but when I heard what they were saying... Yeah... The sheriff forgot his irritations over two discreet secretaries and overly bright reporters. What were they up to? The woman, she was young. I knew that from her voice. She was giving Mr. Cassidy a tongue-lashing, calling him a devil incarnate and a terrorist. It seemed to me that she was delivering a rehearsed speech, not memorized, but excellently thought through. She never paused for a word. And Cassidy? He didn't say a thing. What does she want? I don't know. Perhaps she had made her demands before I came in. But I thought her attitude was one of utter hatred, that if he had offered her anything, she would have thrown it back at him. Really, she gave me crawlies down my spine. And you thought this was of no importance? The sheriff sighed. You're sure you don't know what she wanted? Honestly, I don't. I missed a lot of what she said, because I was in such a quandary myself. I couldn't decide whether to close the door, and hope Mr. Cassidy wouldn't notice, or leave it open and go out myself, which is what I did after a minute. When I came back, she was gone. The sheriff sat down and thought for a moment. Now he had something to root out, a woman's identity, name her, and give her a past and a present. Her future, too, would come under his jurisdiction, if she had connived to kill Cassidy. She had disclosed a motive, cold and calculating hatred. Cardinal's daughter would hate him that way. Did this affect Cassidy at all? The sheriff asked. Make him moody, for instance? Oh, definitely, Mr. Mannering replied. Yes, you'd think a wand was waved over him. He lost his appetite, for one thing, because he didn't go out for lunch, just sat in there with the door closed. I wanted to get him coffee, but he wouldn't have even that. I don't believe he ate a thing those days. And of course he began to look thinner. If it hadn't been Mr. Cassidy, I'd have thought he was frightened and... Well, perhaps remorseful. Then that last afternoon I heard him fall. 
I ran in, and when I saw him lying there, I thought he was dead. Can you give me the exact date the woman was here? The secretary turned to a calendar. Yes, October 2nd. That would be the date for picking up the time slips for that two-week period. Good. Would you know her voice if you heard it again? I doubt it. I was very much confused. Well, if you think of anything else, call me, even if it's the middle of the night. Uh, Mannering? The sheriff grabbed his hat. He had given up any idea of reprisal against Mr. Mannering for withholding evidence. He was at the door when the young man spoke again. There's one more thing, Sheriff. Yeah? Something she said, quite horrible because she said it, so softly and clearly. I could imagine her screaming it, and it wouldn't sound half so terrifying. But in that low voice, you'd have to believe her. The secretary's voice fell to a hoarse whisper. Sheriff, she called him a murderer. When Marmion reached the laboratory, she saw the reason for the doctor's amusement. He had lined up a full evening's work for her. Exasperated, she flipped through the slips. Nothing unnecessary, but he had marked them all for tonight. Dram him, she muttered, flinging her purse into a cupboard. All right, Kingston, M.D., you'll get them tonight, and from me, personally. Sister Judith had left the laboratory, no doubt before King sent up the slips. He would never have dared do it if the nun was on duty, and Marmion would not call her. Straight through the supper hour she worked, and her hair grew damper on her forehead, and her uniform clung to her shoulders. It was nine o'clock when she was finished. She stacked the reports neatly and went down to the doctor's office. To her surprise, he was there, seated in his swivel chair, the lower desk drawer pulled out for a footrest, a medical journal tossed open in front of him. Marmion slapped on the sheaf of slips. My reports, doctor. How efficient you are, Miss Pius. Thank you. Will that be all for tonight, doctor? I believe so. If anything comes up, I can always call you. Oh, don't hesitate. Sister Judith is on call tonight. Thank you. Good night, Miss Pius. He whirled the chair until his back was toward her, but instead of looking over the reports she had worked so hard to provide, he picked up the magazine and began to turn its pages. Marmion was not surprised. Starting angrily back up to the lab, she told herself that this was what she had expected of King. She would not leave voluntarily, so he would persecute her. She was not at all thrilled by him now. Through the dark little labyrinth that spewed off to the x-ray room, she went without thinking of being afraid, and when she took her purse out of the cupboard, where she had kept it all evening, it was with never a thought that someone might be lurking out of sight, but within hearing. She was going to peruse the mysterious paper right here and now, without being disturbed. Upstairs there would be Eloise, at least, possibly Blanche and Lynn and Dixie to come in upon her, and ask what she had. Opening the purse, she mused that she could return the thing to Blanche, or put it back in the corset box for her to find, but all the time she was taking out the paper. A week ago she would never have considered reading anything belonging to another person. Now, quickly, although her hand shook, she smoothed the sheet out on her desk. The page was printed, with names handwritten in the spaces provided. She read it, then read it again. On the 10th of September, four years ago, Eleanor Ann Roberts having united in marriage to Joseph Terence Turner. Jock was Joseph Terence. Sam's article had thus named him, and he had been married, just as Mrs. Totman had said. The wife would be the logical owner of a marriage certificate. But how could Jock's wife, a stranger, have hidden it in the hospital, 
where only an insider such as Blanche could find it. She didn't for a moment consider that Blanche might be Eleanor Ann, but the elusive Eleanor was not a stranger. She knew her way around the hospital. Therefore, she must have taken another name. She did not want to be identified as Jock's wife. Why not? Because she had killed him? Oh, no, Marmion whispered, so faintly that anyone listening in the outer passage would hardly have heard. There was only silence out there, anyway. When the sound finally came from the darkened rectangle beyond the door, it was tiny as a mouse's frisking. Marmion did not hear it. She was putting the paper into the envelope. And then Eloise spoke. What's that, Marmy? Marmion jumped and gave a choked exclamation. What? Oh, Ellie, you scared the daylights out of me. She stopped, horrified. What had she just said? Oh, Ellie. And Ellie could be short for Eleanor Ann. But it wasn't. This was Eloise, her friend, her confidant. Ellie, who had gone down the big balsam's room to get the corset box, who had insisted on going. And she was too young to be Eleanor Ann. Marmy, what in creation is the matter with you? So help me, you look as if you had seen a ghost. The tall girl was in pajamas and robe, her feet in soft slippers. Anyone could walk unheard, like that. Marmion fumbled at her purse, closing it clumsily. You just startled me, Ellie. You know how we all are. What are you hiding in your purse? Hiding? Nothing. Yes, you are, baby. Tell Mama. Eloise came softly over to the desk. Marmion laughed shakily. After all, why not let Ellie see the certificate, watch her, and try to detect any recognition? It would be a quick test. And she would know, then, whether Eloise was friend or enemy. She opened the purse. Can you keep a secret, Ellie? This is a whopper. Look. She unfolded the paper quickly and thrust it at the girl. And Ellie's reaction was the same as her own. Bewilderment first, then comprehension an awareness of danger. When finally she looked up, her eyes were dark with fear. Marmy, this isn't good, she whispered. How did you get hold of it? It was in Sister Peter's corset box, on her closet shelf. Marmion, reassured by Ellie's apprehension, felt her own doubts fade. There's nothing to get us into trouble, really. I'm going to telephone the sheriff right away. Of course. Eloise folded the paper and tucked it into Marmion's purse. But she was listening oddly, as if half her attention remained in the dark little hall she had just traversed. Come on, Marmy, upstairs. You can phone from there. But this is more private. No. Ellie's green eyes slid away from the door to Marmion, and her face was whiter than if she had fainted. Oh, Marmy, come on. There was nothing else she could do. She had to obey Ellie's insistence. And Eleanor Ann, perhaps, had never been nicknamed at all. Talk about jumping to conclusions. I'm with you, Ellie. You go ahead and turn on the lights, then I'll turn off this one. Everything's under control. Queer for her to be encouraging Eloise. They ran together all the way to their sitting room. Mrs. Topman lay on her back, staring into the comfortable dimness made by the night light down in the base of her floor lamp. She had been thinking, ever since the sheriff's visit, mulling over names. She had not come upon a pair that would do for the twins, but her efforts had not been entirely wasted. Out of memory, at last, had come the name of Jock's wife. A simple one, but tricky to remember. Several times she had picked up the string of her signal light to call the nurse and asked her to telephone the sheriff, since she had promised. 
but Baxter with the corns is on duty, and probably not in a frame of mind to deliver messages. Tomorrow, too, the sheriff would be here, and there would be the great satisfaction of telling him herself. She wouldn't forget the name, either, once she had remembered it. She turned over and settled for sleep. She wouldn't forget. The name was Ellie. End of chapter 11